We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. I'm your host, Gavin Phipps, and I'm joined in the studio to this evening by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And by Michael Fahey. Hi, Gavin. Great to be back. And our first matter of business this week is, well, well, where we couldn't go last week. That was when we recorded the show. The KMT and the Taiwan People's Party hadn't named their respective vice presidential candidates or registered with the Central Election Commission. Of course, the KMT picked Broadcasting Corporation of China chairman and well-known political pundit Zhao Xiaokang, while the TPP chose lawmaker Cynthia Wu, who is the daughter of former Xing Kong Financial Holdings chairman Eugene Wu. Now, Terry Guo opted out of the race at the last minute, which means campaigning by the three parties running in the presidential election officially began on earnest last Friday afternoon and has continued ever since. Now, after the major divorce between the KMT and the TPP, several polls have been released, Ross. Now, these polls seem to put Mr Kerr, Kerwin Jer, lower than he was when before they had the split, and Ho Yoi appears to have bounced up and is now, if caught two of them, United Daily News and TVBS, is Ho Yoi is now slightly behind Lai Ching De. Yes, but there are also some polls that show Ko Wenjie ahead. I think there was a Taiwan Public Opinion Foundation poll. So uh, I guess at the moment, uh, one week into the official campaign and only one week since the uh, vice presidential running mates were named and Guo Taiming, Terry Go uh, dropped out. I guess we could say that the polling is still a work in progress. Uh, we have to wait probably a few more days uh, or weeks, although don't, we don't really have that much uh, time until the election uh, to see what the trend really is. But yeah, for the most part, the polls, I would say uh, the majority still seem to have lie ahead and uh, Ho and Ke battling for second and third place. Uh, and it's been that way throughout this campaign season, right? Uh, William Lai has consistently uh, pulled ahead, not by a very large amount. Uh, you know, he's he's only in the low to mid-30s usually. And there's still the, the undecideds that in a lot of polls are typically 10 to 15 percent. And uh, we still have to see what the, the ultimate effect of uh, Terry Goh dropping out is and where do those votes go. There does seem to have been a bit of a reordering uh, with it. The trend does seem to look like Ho has picked up a little bit of support. Uh, And I suppose that that could be related to uh, more publicity for him during the couple of weeks when the... TPP and the KMT were trying to decide what to do with each other. And also because I think his campaign style has loosened up a little bit. Uh, but probably the most important thing for him is that Terry Goh has dropped out. And I think it's reasonable to at least hypothesize that many of his very deep blue supporters have returned to the fold because Zhao Xiaokang was named vice president. So I think that he's definitely gotten a bump and there may be a trend to where he's coming into second place. But looking at the big picture, Lai is still a bit ahead, but it's going to be a close race. Close race, meaning uh, n- no winner 
no matter who the winner is, is going to have a huge mandate. And uh, we only have to look to four years ago when Tsai Ing-wen was reelected with 57% to say that sure is a huge mandate. And, and it was, uh, especially in a democratic election. Uh, so whoever wins, if Lai continues to uh, be, be the lead and he wins with what the polls indicate, 34, 35%, something like that, uh, unfortunately for him, it's going to be really far from a mandate. And Ross, where did where did Mr. Terry Gore or Terry Go went? Uh, he certainly didn't go to register as a presidential uh, candidate. Uh, you know, he had participated in that final uh, attempt at, at opposition unity, which took place uh, a week ago Thursday. Uh, that that failed, but he was there and he wasn't able to play the matchmaker. Uh, he still might endorse Hoyoe or Koenja, even though, as Michael said, for now it seems like some of the votes that he was getting, you know, not eight, nine percent, whatever it was, uh, have gone to Hoyoe in the polls. Uh, but his endorsement will certainly be helpful. Frankly, his endorsement might make the difference in, in uh, for Hoyoe or for Koenja to, to win the election. I also have no idea where Mr. Terry has gone on his, uh, I presume, on his charter jet or his private jet. But, um, you know, I think trying to be fair to him, he did play a very unusual role in this election. Uh, I think many, including myself at times, have seen him as simply a troublemaker and somebody desperate for attention like certain other billionaires uh, we see these days. But... He has kind of consistently said that he was trying to force a uh, a joint ticket between the TPP and the KMT, and he failed, but he did try, and he made a last-ditch effort. It failed miserably, looked bad for everyone, including him, but uh, I think he can bow off stage now and say that he did his best. And of course, Ross, there was news reports on the interweb this week that apparently Hoyoe was trying desperately to contact him by the telephone. It seems to be a recurring theme in Taiwan politics, no matter which party, that they can't find people, which is so peculiar because many of us, not you, Gavin, but many of us do constantly look at our phones. In fact, I'm looking at my phone while we're recording this show. The idea that he couldn't reach. So I think what it usually actually means is the other person didn't want to talk to you at that moment. He could have also left a message. Uh, well, Gavin, again, uh, your, your use of, of, of the mobile device seems to be less frequent than the rest of us. But uh, leaving uh, voicemail has gone out of style, I have to inform you. Actually, I don't think voicemail ever came into style in Taiwan. <laughs> uh, nobody has ever left messages either on, on landline phones or on uh, mobile phones. But we, yes. got, we got to get you on the show more often so you could get some audience uh, phone calls leaving you messages. <laughs> Oh, well, no, thanks, Ross. <laughs> and Michael, I mean, do you think when Mr. Gore does pop back on the scene, it'll be with a big splash, or do you think he'll be slightly less subdued? It depends on what kind of opportunity he has. If he can climb back on stage, I have no doubt that he will do it in a second. But I think at this point, uh, it may be difficult for him to command the audience that he believes that he warrants. People have moved on. He's clearly irrelevant to this election at this point. Uh, and 
I think that now we're really in the campaign and people are really thinking about the actual candidates now. I suppose I disagree with Michael because I still think that uh, Mr. Goh's uh, support, if, if he endorses Hollow or Kuh, the voters that, that were part of that 8 or 9% that, that had supported him, you know, that could make the difference in the election, right? That's how close this election might be, right? Since they're all polling uh, within 5 or 6%, right? It ranges from like 34 to 28 or whatever. Uh, so 8 or 9% can make a huge difference if Go does decide to endorse either Ho or Ka, and then we'll have endless discussion about what, what did he get in return? Is he well, going to be the premier or something? Uh, I agree with you to a certain extent, but but disagree as well, because I think that most of the Ho voters, whether it's 7% or 8%, uh, Ho, Go voters, whether it's 7% or 8% or whatever, have already gone to the uh, Zhao Shaokong ticket. And they're also attracted by Han Guoyu being at the top of the uh, party list, which we're going to discuss. Wow, well, well, poor Ho Yoi. You don't even call it the Ho ticket. You <laughs> called it the Zhao Shaokong ticket. <laughs> well, Freudian slip, perhaps, but many people are saying it does look like the Zhao Shaokong ticket. But, but my point is, is that I think you're right in that it depends on how close the election is. Uh, he, uh, Go probably does command uh, the attention of at least a few hundred thousand business owner types who think that it would really be better if a business owner was running the country. And so if it's a really close election that comes down to a few hundred thousand votes, which it could, his endorsement could mean something. Well, Zhao Shaokong's a, biz, a business owner, right? He owns a media network. I guess we'll talk a little bit more about that later, whether, whether it's still fair for him to own a media network while running for office. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I just wouldn't discount the, the go endorsement effect unless he waits, right? If he waits till like, the final week of the campaign and then he, he appears at one of those final rallies, it might be too late to have an effect. So uh, rather than disappear and, and get on his private jet and disappear, uh, yeah, my advice to which are to either Ho or Ko would be, you got to get that endorsement Reach at, out to him. as soon as possible and get him on the stage and get him campaigning uh, throughout Taiwan over the final five weeks of the campaign. I mean, there's no... There's no downside to having him uh, to having Go as as an endorsee and campaigning over all over Taiwan on behalf uh, of your campaign. So yeah, I, w- I would recommend those two guys chase down that endorsement, but not on the telephone. No, because obviously Mr. Gordon well, well, does know, not it, answer his telephone. In all seriousness, that 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 is an interesting point because a lot of the discussion about the joint ticket seemed to revolve around the candidates meeting. You know, and then of course it was all in the news. None of it was kept secret. But you know, Ko and Joe went to Terry Go's home, or you know, or or someone else, some emissary from the Gomindang went to meet Terry Go's. Right. So, a lot of those discussions do seem to revolve around face-to-face meetings rather than phone calls. And well, let's move on to the party list now, because the DPP, the KMT and the TPB have finalised their legislator-at-large list for January election. Now, the DPP opted to put Jing Chun, Child Safety Foundation Chief Executive Officer Lin Yue Chin at the top of its list, and Lin is followed by Puma Shen, the director of the National Taipei University's Graduate School of Criminology. The KMT opted for former Kaohsiung Mayor and 2020 presidential candidate Hang Guo Yu at the top of its list, and he's followed by former lawmaker Ke Jiayin, who of course ran for the post of Kaohsiung Mayor in the last local election. And the Taiwan People's Party put former Taipei Deputy Mayor Vivian Huang at the top of its list, sparking some rather iry feelings, while former New Power Party lawmaker Huang Guocheng was second on the TPP's list. 
I would focus most on the number two spots for uh, Huang Guochang and, uh, and Han Guoyu at the top in the KMT list, uh, and then Puma Shen number two on the DPP list. Uh, these, I think, present really clear choices for voters. Uh, Puma Shen is very clearly uh, a representative of the DPP's commitment to, as it was, to uh, you know resist China and protect Taiwan that has now been rebranded as making Taiwan resilient because he's supposed to be an expert on the cognitive warfare that's supposedly overwhelming Taiwan. Uh, so that really shows their commitment there. Han Guoyu, of course, still has many supporters after his very remarkable political rise a few, a few election cycles ago. And uh, he's attractive to the deep blue voters that the KMT must get back to the fold to remain a viable party. Uh, and then Huang Guochang is really quite interesting because he's... The Sunflower Movement had two dimensions. Internationally, I think it's best known for being sort of an act of resistance against Chinese hegemony and economic takeover, Taiwanese sovereignty, and that sort of thing. But it was also very remarkable for the level of political and civic discussion that you saw going on at that time among young people. They were talking about all kinds of issues, and there was really a feeling that maybe a different kind of politics was going to be possible in Taiwan. And I see Ke Wenzhe's present incarnation as being perhaps the last expression of that side of the Sunflower Movement. In any event, uh, around 2018, the Sunflower Movement's political manifestation, which was the New Power Party, went the way of most sort of social justice parties by splitting between people who wanted to pursue a centrist social justice uh, you know, kind of party and those who were really serious about protecting Taiwanese sovereignty and that sort of thing. And there was a split. And so you see Freddie Lim, who's, you know, the big, you know, a big protect Taiwan, resist China person joining the DPP now. And Huang Guochang was, I think, part of the other faction. And now he's thrown his lot in with Ke Wenzhe. I'm not sure how many people are still out there who are willing to give Huang Guochang and that faction of the NPP, which was never a very big party to begin with, uh, another chance. But that's why he's there, and it does make a certain amount of sense for Ke. Well, that's democracy for you. You know, people form parties, they leave parties. Uh, people make uh, strange trade-offs to uh, get the endorsement or be on a party list. Uh, I guess putting Puma Shen as number two on their party list was a very uh, defensive move by the DPP because being number two guarantees that he'll, he'll win a seat. 
And then whatever happens in the presidential or the legislative elections overall, he could uh, repeatedly say cognitive warfare, cognitive warfare, cognitive warfare. And a bunch of foreign media will robotically print whatever Pumashan says by way of accusing anyone who didn't vote for the DPP of being brainwashed by some uh, you know, scientific uh, advance that came out of China you know, to influence how many millions of people in Taiwan decided to vote. Look, ultimately, millions of people are not going to vote for the DPP. It still might be less than actually vote for the DPP. But my gosh, that's not cognitive warfare either. Some people just genuinely don't like the DPP. And that might be very difficult for someone like Puma Shun to fully comprehend, notwithstanding his sterling academic credentials and how many times he's quoted in the foreign media. What about others? What about Mr. Han Guoyu, Ross? Uh, I am looking forward to him being in the legislature because it'll certainly give us plenty to talk about as as observers. Uh, yeah, he's number one on the list, so that guarantees he'll 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 get a seat. I have no idea what kind of issues he will prioritize uh, you know, from a, a lawmaking perspective or an oversight perspective. Uh, of course, if the Goldman candidate wins the election, there'll be no oversight. Pretty much what we saw the past eight years when the same party was in the presidential office in the legislative year. Uh, but if uh, William Lai wins the election and Han Yu is, is in the legislative UN, I, again, I, I think we should see, have lots of entertaining moments to come. And we shouldn't discount the possibility that uh, some kind of TPP, uh, Taiwan People's Party and Chinese Nationalist Party coalition will have a majority in the legislative UN. And Han Yu might even be the, the speaker of the House, uh, the speaker of the legislative UN. Um, that, that'll uh, be even more entertaining. That would be, that would be extremely significant if we came into a scenario where the KMT president or maybe even... Uh, a Ko Wenzhou presidency started to reopen trade talks with China, and students and others tried to reoccupy the legislative UN. But now Wang Jinping is not the speaker of the legislative UN to protect them, but Han Guoyu. Uh, I, I don't think Han Guoyu has any serious policy proposals based on his past performance, uh, but I'm sure that he's extremely interested in becoming the speaker, of the, the president of the legislative UN. Because, of course, he famously put some rather famous politician in hospital when he was last in the legislative UN, Ross. Well, hopefully he's matured and calmed down a bit over the past 30 years <laughs> or during the time that, that he's not been in politics or his brief time as mayor. Uh, again, um, it should be extremely entertaining. Uh, I'll probably say this many more times in, in the coming weeks and months, but if William Lai wins but does not have a majority in the legislative UN, something that President Tsai has enjoyed throughout her tenure. Um, th- that won't be good for getting stuff done. I mean, you know, all jokes and humor aside, uh, uh, William, President William Lai with a minority DPP in the legislative UN is going to mean there's, there'll be a, a lot of not – I won't call it oversight because a lot of it will just be for a show for the media – and it'll be very difficult for the government to get its uh, legislative agenda to the extent they have one um, through the, through an opposition-led legislative UN. Um, that that just won't be good for Taiwan society from a very, uh, you know, I'll just say that as a very general, very broad observation. More specifically, the the I completely agree with your observations. Uh, we, during the Chen Shui-bian administration, we had a situation where we had a minority president and the other party in charge of the legislative UN. 
and not very not all that much got done legislated. There was a lot of deadlock. Uh, the executive branch in Taiwan is extremely powerful, and so they will they will be able to govern. But I think more specifically, uh, Taiwan's military budgets will probably be very contested, and the majority party in the legislature may not be inclined to approve all the submarine programs and weapons purchases that the United States and the DPP may wish to see. Well, fortunately, a lot of those are already approved and partially paid for, even though delivery <laughs> delivery has been delayed for years to come. But yeah, the submarine, uh, I mean, the, the, the argument you're making, that also applies should Koenja or, or Hoyoi be elected president. Um, and people I talk to have identified the submarine as probably the most obvious candidate for some kind of uh, change, uh, whether it comes from the executive branch or the legislative branch. Uh, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's going to be eliminated, but the, 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 again, it's it's a significant target uh, and distinct from the things that have already been ordered, the $20 billion of weapons that have already been ordered and not delivered. And Ross, what about Vivian Huang? Of course, she was seen as the rising star in the Taiwan People's Party. And her selection as the number one spot um, made a few people rather angry. But I don't know why they'd be angry. She was the obvious person to lead lead the TPP slate. She ran uh, for mayor last year with uh, Taipei City Mayor with the endorsement of the TPP, although she was not formally a party member at the time. Uh, she has a, a lead role in Ko Wenzhou's presidential campaign. And obviously, uh, Ko Wenzhou relies hev- heavily on, on her advice, and he has a very high opinion of her. And um, this was not, it's not intended to be a democratic process. You know, whoever the chairman decides should be number one. Uh, th- what the chairman says goes. And uh, being number one, she's guaranteed to have a seat in, in the legislative UN. Well, Ross, surely... The TPP uh, has a central standing committee or something like that that is required to endorse these decisions. I think they're required to follow what the chairman says. I think they're practice. <laughs> that's probably the case. And that's that leads me to one of their great weaknesses, which is that Huang Shanshan is a very sophisticated person and politician and experienced legislator, and she will obviously be more effective in the legislature than she will be as vice president. I really thought you were going to say she's going to be more effective than Han Guoyu. <laughs> uh, no, no, I don't underestimate Han Guoyu either. But I think that um, it does point to a problem the TPP has, which they are thin on people. They can't have Wang Shansen run for vice president because they need her so much in the legislature to be effective. And this is kind of an ongoing theme that we see for the TPP is organizational weakness and not enough uh, talented people to be able to really make a push to become a major party. Uh, that's their great challenge right now, as I see it. And, of course, we talked about him earlier very briefly. And Freddie Lim this week announced that he's joined the DPP, Ross. To yeah. help him win all the legislative seats. That's what he said. Yeah, well, uh, in a way, it's irre- irrelevant because he's decided not to run for re-election this time. So I'm not sure who really cares which party he holds a membership card from or if he holds no card at all. Uh, who knows? Maybe if, if William Lai is elected president, he'll make Freddie Lim the minister of culture. It would seem to be a logical fit for him. Not minister the de- of foreign affairs. The defense minister. 
Uh, I believe there's some uh, criticism that uh, Freddie Lim did not serve in the military. <laughs> well, that hasn't stopped anybody else. But, uh, but, but the um, Freddie Lim, for example, might have some influence in the tight three-way race in Wanhua that's going in the Wanhua Zhongzheng district, for example. So it's not completely meaningless, but uh, it seems that that faction from the new power party that split off over the that old dispute about Taiwanese independence and sovereignty versus social justice issues that uh, caused splits in the DPP back in the 1980s and early 90s and also uh, in a different way, uh, you know, lessened and marginalized the new party back uh, more in the mid and late 90s as it turned into a unification party. Um, that faction of the MPP, the pro-Taiwan, pro-sovereignty people, they have clearly decided that now is the time for everybody to rally around the DPP as the party that's going to protect Taiwanese sovereignty, uh, even if they're not totally thrilled with the DPP per se. I'm not sure uh, who's left not to be totally thrilled. I mean, they have so so few legislators. Their their support in those polls about that that poll, um, you know, the public on which party they have a good feeling towards or which one they support. I mean, it's it's fallen to such tiny, minuscule levels. Uh, you know, they'll be lucky to have any legislators. Um, yes, everyone who's significant has left, and they have no support. It's it's a. It, it, I was just talking about how the TPP faces so many challenges as a third party. Now, they're different from the NPP in that they're not a social justice party, like the new party started out as and like part of the DPP was. But the TPP is a one-man party, like the James Song party was and like the Taiwan Solidarity Union was. And, And both of these types of third parties face special problems in Taiwanese uh, politics. But so far, none of them have been viable long-term, and the MPP has clearly gone the way of all third parties thus far, and we're waiting to see what happens with the TPP. I'm going to guess that the the woman who is at the top of the legislative party list, Huang Shanshan, and the woman who is Ko Wenzhou's running mate would disagree with your characterization that it's a one-man party. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, well, they would be wrong, though. <laughs> but would Kerr disagree? Uh, you, you know, like many of the political attacks that emanate from the DPP or its proxies, they try to attack Ko and uh, earlier this year for being a misogynist. And that, that argument kind of percolated in media for a few days or a few weeks, and then it just disappeared because it, it ultimately failed, um, given the number of, of women that uh, held senior roles in the municipal administration uh, of Coenja or the number of women who hold senior roles in, in his political party, the spokesman, for example. Um, and uh, again, you know, he's made a woman the top of, of the party list for, for the legislative UN. He's selected a woman to be his running mate uh, in the presidential election. Uh, so that, that, that ultimately flopped. But, uh, but all of these women are creations of Kowinta. Uh, None of them would be on the national stage without him. The one who's running in Taichung uh, is his former nurse who worked on his team for years. Uh, they're creatures 
of Cohen's. Well, they would have never gotten on, on the national stage. On Huang Shanshai. I mean, she was she was a Taipei. She city was counselor. a nobody. But she was a Taipei city councilor for. She was a years. nobody. She was repeatedly uh, reelected. Not uh, on the so national stage. I, I, I wouldn't call them. I wouldn't call her a creature of, or a creation of of uh, Ko Wenjia, and the same for Cynthia Wu. Just coming, the fact that she comes from a prominent business family means she's not. A, she's definitely not a creation of Ko Wenjia. She would have never gotten on the national stage without Ko Wenjia, and neither would have Huang Shanshe. She would have stayed an obscure city councilor. We should move on now, and KMT vice presidential candidate Zhao Xiaokang this week insisted that he has no plans to resign from his position as the chairman of the Broadcasting Corporation of China. Speaking on a radio show this week, Zhao said he's already taken a leave of absence to focus on campaigning for the election. That statement came amid calls for the National Communications Commission to seek clarification about Zhao's position at the broadcaster and to explain how the company will maintain media fairness and impartiality during the election. There have also been calls for the NCC to investigate whether Zhao's close ties to BCC contravene broadcast regulations, banning political parties, the government or the military from owning, managing or investing in media. Now, the NCC has said it submitted a request for the media company to explain what it plans to do with programmes hosted by the now KMT vice presidential candidate to avoid contravening the Public Officials Election and Recall Act, Michael. So, Mr Zhao and his BCC... Back in the 1990s, there was a long movement to force political parties and the government, uh, with certain exceptions, and the military to divest their extensive media assets from the party state days. And that culminated, I think, back in 2003, where a number of laws were modified, including the Radio and Television Act uh, and the ownership of media entities by parties was banned. But there is no ban on an individual who happens to be a member of a party or even an individual who is a member of a party and is running for office from uh, investing in a radio station or being its chairman, which is what Mr. Zhao's role is. So Uh, The more interesting question is uh, whether, to to what extent, uh, these figures who have roles as directors or chairman or members of advisory commissions and that kind of thing, you know, do we need another set of media laws to stop some of uh, this kind of indirect control by means of patronage, which is making a lot of people queasy in Taiwan? But basically... Uh, Zhao can run for office and be the chairman of the China Broadcasting Corporation. And to allay concerns about that, he's taken a vacation, I believe, from his uh, role there. This is much to do about nothing. And these two media outlets, the Broadcasting Corporation of China and uh, TVBS, where he hosted a, a show, and they were both biased. They, and they'll continue to be biased. The, the, these are media networks that are no friend to the Democratic Progressive Party and very friendly to the Chinese Nationalist Party. Whether or not uh, Zhao is, is a program host on, uh, at BCC or at TVBS, really, in the, in the big picture, doesn't change anything. I mean, the only people who watch those shows are people who already have an opinion <laughs> and don't like the government. And, and that's why they tune into those programs to, to get their fill of anti-government discussion. I mean, the, the, we'll, I mean we just... Have to call it what it is. I, I suspect that after a few days, this will be a, a non-issue. It's just an, an effort to sort of throw throw all the mud against the wall and see what sticks.
But Michael, you you heard a show last night. Yes, it was Zhao Shao Kong's uh, rather famous show, The Situation Room, which is a very partisan show. But I actually think that Zhao is interesting because a lot of even green voters like to listen to him. The man can really talk. He's pretty interesting and pretty funny. Uh, but yes, it's a very partisan show. And since Zhao has left to run for vice president, uh, it hosting duties have been taken over by the former weekend host, a woman named Amber Chen. And the show has turned into basically an ongoing political advertisement for Zhao and the KMT. Last night, they had a campaign-style event where they were on a stage holding the show rather than in the studio where they usually are. And the host of the show, Amber Chin, said in the first couple minutes, she referred to American defense officials who predicted a Chinese invasion of Taiwan at various points as uh, an epithet, which means pointy nose in English. It's an epithet in Taiwanese. And I'm of the view that it is derogatory and that she should not be using it, especially because she has shown repeatedly on the show that her command of Taiwanese is shaky at best. Uh, as I said, I think th- this issue will percolate for a few more days or a few more weeks, but ultimately will, will be a non-issue. Look, if, if, if they win, then he'll have to formally cut his ties because he'll have a full-time job as, as vice president. He won't be able to run the BCC or, or host a show on TVBS anymore. And if he loses, he'll just go back to hosting his show. And for the next four years, uh, he'll be saying how awful the administration of William Lai is. So again, I think in, in the big picture of election issues, this is probably a minor one. It's going to go away. You don't think that he's going to go on the radio and be so offensive to the DPP and the run up to the election, the DPP might actually get a bit irked about this and it won't go away? Well, it's an interesting question because where do you draw the line? You know, as, as a candidate, obviously he's going to be critical of the government. He's from an opposition party. So whether he's the host or it's, it's a reporter asking him, you know, a reporter from one of those networks, asking him his opinion in the context of a news report about the ongoing uh, election campaign, you know, where, where are you going to draw that line? Um, we all know he owns the BCC. We all know he's a host on TVBS. We all know he's the, the Gomindang vice presidential candidate. I, I think uh, we need to give the public some credit. The, pu- the public are not idiots, and they know his role with those, those networks. You know, no, nobody in the listening audience is saying, well, I'd like the government to do more to make the BCC unbiased. You know, I mean, that, that's just preposterous. So, again, I, I think that this issue will go away pretty but, but quickly. But it is a very complex one because we also have a situation that, of course, the KMT and and their media f- friends have have highlighted, which is that the DBP itself has placed many of its friends and even now I believe one at large candidate on the boards of various TV stations or media programs or advisory commissions. So we have this situation where. Uh, patronage networks in various forms are used to control or to influence or to at least have a voice uh, in the media uh, all over the place. And I don't think that there's that many other 
I, I'm not familiar with, at least with the in the UK or the US, I'm not really sure that we have such a cozy relationship to this extent that we see here. There could be another, uh, there may need to be another round of reform uh, about this at some point. Oh, I hope not, because it'll just take forever to get past <laughs> uh, and end up in constitutional challenges. Yeah, and uh, it'll raise the question: of What do we do with the public broadcasting system, which uh, is government controlled but has a foundation in the middle uh, as a as an entity that actually runs the stations uh, that are part of that network? Then uh, there's precisely, know, and they have directors, a board. And who are the DPP mostly appointed has by now the appoint, uh, appointed a lot of people who are friendly to it on yeah. it. Yeah, although uh, the, at the public broadcasting system, they do have uh, minority party representatives on on the board of directors as well. So there's some attempt at, at balance, even though the majority are going to be uh, pro government. Uh, then the, you know, there are other other media. That, that we'd also have to figure out what to do with, like the Central News Agency, Radio Taipei International. Um, so the, the government of the day, which has been the DPP for the eight years, does still have an outsized role in running media networks. And Ross, what about looking the other way? We talked about Zhao Xiaokang and BCC. What about a certain television channel? Or a couple of television channels mm. that are sort of well known for leaning more to the green in a rather somewhat, some might say, controversial and too far away. Well, I, I guess that that's good for ballads, right? You could flip the channel between TVBS and uh, Sanli SETN, and you know you could see what the bozos on either side are saying. Yeah, and and you know, there's uh, you also have you know the the Liberty Times, which is which is owned by a giant construction company that's always been friendly to you know sort of green interests, uh, going back to the Lee Young Hui days, and it's fine for there to be partisan media. That's 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 normal. It's it's when the control of the media through directorships and that kind of thing, uh, whether it's at public broadcasting companies or in private ones becomes too intertwined with the parties in the government that I believe there begin to be concerns. And moving on now, the Kaohsiung Chaotou District Prosecutor's Office on Tuesday of this week announced that it had questioned some two dozen people as part of an investigation into the organising of Beijing-funded tours to China. Now, two people who were later released on bail as part of that probe Apparently, they took 130 Taiwanese nationals on China tours funded by Beijing's Taiwan Affairs Office. Prosecutors basically say they took them to Henan, Shandong, Shanxi and Xinjiang provinces. And the Taiwanese nationals participating in those tours included several current and former borough wardens. Prosecutors say the tour members were taken to meet with officials from the Taiwan Affairs Office and also United Front Entities, where they were asked about their political leanings and told to vote for China-friendly parties in January's election. So, Ross, 22 people... Two people were released on bail, of course. Although, wouldn't you release someone on bail of 50,000 NT? I kind of thought they would have done very much. Yeah, that's a good point. It doesn't seem to be too serious. Look, th this constantly happens where uh, lower-level officials in China at the local level connected to the local uh, branch, for lack of a better word, the Taiwan Affairs Office, uh, organize these visits where they entertain visiting uh, very grassroots level delegations from different parts of Taiwan. It's an ongoing problem. Uh, it would be good if there was a, uh, an end to it. 
But on the other hand, this has no effect on the election whatsoever. What did you say? There were 22 people. That's really not going to change the election result. 22 people were questioned. They took 130 people. Uh, Even 130 people are not going to change the election result. Yeah, I completely agree. It does not seem to be an efficient influence campaign to be flying relatively small numbers of people who probably are already going to vote for your preferred party anyway and whining and dining them in China. It's against the law. Uh, The prosecutors are watching it. Uh, They have acted. They investigated. Maybe these people will be convicted. Maybe they won't. Uh, There have been other people who have been uh, prosecuted and and haven't been convicted for similar charges. So uh, it's, it's a interesting little blip on the you know ongoing relationship between Taiwan and China but I don't think that we need to be over concerned by this kind of very common activity and we talked about the rather racist backlash to confirmation that the government is in talks with New Delhi regarding allowing the hiring of Indian migrant workers to Taiwan a couple of weeks ago. Now, people have been taking to social media to post derogatory and racist comments about Indians and make some rather outlandish and ignorant claims. But this past weekend, the issue took a turn when local media ran stories citing sources as saying that the rumours claiming the government is set to introduce as many as 100,000 migrant workers from India were part of China's cognitive warfare attacks on Taiwan. And also, there's been something appearing on the interweb that says apparently people are being asked to rally in Taipei this weekend, Ross, to protest the decision to invite Indian migrant workers to Taiwan. Yeah, I don't think this is cognitive warfare. They're just people who, uh, for different motivations, just genuinely don't want uh, Taiwan government to approve such a large number of Indian workers to be employed here in Taiwan. Uh, their motivation might be bigotry and racism. Uh, there are also people who think it's going to depress wages. And there are also people who think Taiwan has longstanding and fairly effective guest worker programs with several Southeast Asian countries. Well, why do we need to change that? So if there's a worker shortage, just recruit from those existing countries. I mean, those programs, again, they're, they, they've been in place a long time. There's been improvements over the years, but it seems that employers who need this kind of labor, they're comfortable with Thais and Indonesians and Vietnamese and Filipinos. Even myself, I'm not sure why Indians need to be added to this mix when those existing programs seem to function well. I don't think there's any evidence for cognitive warfare either. In the matter that we just discussed when we were talking about the trips to China, uh, prosecutors did an investigation and apparently found enough facts and evidence to convince them to charge somebody. So that is at least somebody has tried to get and compiled evidence. But on this issue, the only thing that we have is the Ministry of Labor, the Minister of Labor simply asserting that this was cognitive warfare. And then a DBP uh candidate lower down, a legislator, I believe, pointed to some developments on the internet and that were then picked up by the China Times and then were reported in China that might give rise to some kind of reasonable suspicion. But but reasonable suspicion is a very low level of, uh, of... And nobody has put out any evidence for any cognitive warfare here. But what is much more interesting about this to me is that I it appears to me that there really are some people online who are concerned about this issue. 
and now they have the problem and it I read in the China News again, it's the China Times again, possibly not the most reliable media source, but they did make the effort to reach out and actually talk to one of the organizers. And it does appear that a group has reserved Ketagalan Boulevard for December 3rd. And so there may be some kind of rally. I would expect it to be very small. They say that they want to uh, they want the government to discuss major policies with them uh, beforehand. They want a migrant worker uh, act. Uh, they want improvements in working conditions for Taiwan, and they oppose exploitation of migrant workers. Now, these are not racist issues. These are, you know, perfectly fine matters of civic discussion. And then you have a lot of, you know, noise on the Internet. The really interesting thing to see here is will anything actually concrete in the real world develop out of all this noise on the Internet? And we won't see that until we see how many people show up on December 3rd. I'd be curious if any workers from the existing source countries show up at this because it might be the loss of job opportunities for their countrymen. So I'll be looking to see if any Vietnamese, Filipinos, Thais, or Indonesians show up. I'll be looking to see if there's any counter demonstrators, especially from the Indian community. This has actually raised a lot of concern among professional Indians and has even been reported back in India. It's not a good look. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And Michael Fahey. Keep warm over the weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.